So, uh, this is the Word of God, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll pick up in verse 3. This is God's Word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, bound, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, insecurity plagues us all. We are not what we should be, and we know it. Sin has alienated us from God, from creation, from other human beings, and perhaps most painfully of all, from ourselves. We are haunted by our inadequacies, and as a result, none of us are truly comfortable in our own skin. And like our first parents in the Garden of Eden, we engage in a game of hide-and-seek, cover-up, you might say try and hide our inadequacy, to try and hide who we really are and what we are really like. And we have a thousand ways of doing this. In a few weeks' time, we'll all be buying our Christmas tree, or some of you call it the pagan bush, but we'll be buying our Christmas tree soon and decorating it, covering it in lights and baubles, all in a desperate effort to cover up the sad fact that it is, in fact, a dead pine tree. And as the, as the season progresses, it becomes more and more difficult to cover that fact up as it divests itself of all of its pine needles and becomes a fire hazard. But still, the lights and the baubles look beautiful, don't they? And likewise, you and I have a thousand ways of covering up the fact that we are but by nature dead sinners on our way to the grave. We use our appearance, our physical shape, our determination to stay in shape, to stay looking youthful and young and perky. Uh, we clothe ourselves in as the finest clothes we can afford. We, we shave ourselves and we cut our hair and we put our best foot forward, right, to try and appear clean-cut and well-presented We keep our cars clean and our yards manicured and our house in some degree of order, and we find identity in these things. We try and make sure our children don't let us down in public um, to raise them to be success and so forth and so on. All of these are like the lights and baubles of a Christmas tree trying to cover up who we really are and to present um, the paper-thin veneer, at least, that we are successful, that we have it all together that we have nothing to be embarrassed about. And sometimes we can even believe our own propaganda, our own PR campaign, 
and forget the fact that we're nothing but a poor, dead sinner on the way to the grave. Whenever we do believe our propaganda, um, we start to take ourselves a little bit too seriously, don't we? And we demand that others take us too seriously as well. We stand on our rights. We assert our dignity. We cling to our glory. We think only and mostly of ourselves, and we get antsy when other people stand in our way. And that's what's happening in Philippi. People are self-seeking. That's why Eudia and Syntyche are at each other's throat. It's why the young preacher boys are vying for pole position on the, on the circuit that Paul has vacated being in prison. There's too much of themselves in their lives, in their ministries. They're selfish. And I wonder this morning, as I asked you last week, do you ever get weary of the selfishness of your heart? There's times we, we feel as if we make great progress, and then there are other times, and this has been my um, own testimony these last few weeks with the several rounds of RSV and the flu and so forth going through our family. I've been appalled just at my selfishness, and, and how can you overcome selfishness, right? Do you ever get weary of yourself, having so much of yourself in your life, how hard it is to push yourself down? And not to think less of yourself so much, that's part of it, but to think of yourself less, think of Christ more. <coughs> How do you do that? And that's the problem in Philippi. There are too many somebodies in the church of nobodies trying to find their place in the pecking order. Is that the problem in your home, in your marriage, in this church? Too much of you, too much of me, not enough of Christ. And Paul gives us the answer to that selfish mindset in our text this morning, and it's the mind of Christ. Paul says, let me tell you about the only somebody there ever was who made himself a nobody to save the likes of you and me. In your concern this morning that people not underestimate you, Paul says, I want you to be very careful that you don't underestimate Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the text this morning, Paul wants to, to take you… This is not a place for theological tourism. It's a place for worship, to stand and look to love and to sing and to wonder at Christ, who He was, His being, what He knew about Himself, His mindset, and then what He did, His mission. Let's work through this together. First of all, who He was, Paul says, I want you to see who Christ was his being. Verse 6. Literally, who 
existing in the form of God, did not count equalities with God a thing to be grasped with a tight fist. Paul says literally, who existing in the form of God. Those simple words describe Jesus before Bethlehem's rude stable, before the warm welcome of the virgin's womb, before God took one of her ovum in the… one of her ova, plural, in the fallopian tube and fertilized, he took half of her genetic information, half of her chromosomes, and he supplied all the rest himself by the Holy Spirit and created a new beginning for humanity. And in that moment, the man, Christ Jesus, came into being. But before that, Jesus had another existence. In other words, what we're saying about what we can't say about you and me, we can say about Jesus. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb, you had no existence. You did not exist except in the mind of God, but there was no personal you anywhere in the cosmos. But that is precisely what was not true of Jesus. Before he became flesh, he existed in the form of God. Notice the, notice the verb that Paul uses. It's a present tense verb, literally existing in the form of God. The ESV has was, though he was in the form of God, but the, it's not the verb to be um, like it sounds in the English. It's, it's a Hebrew verb to exist in a certain state like water boiling at 100 degrees centigrade, right? Water goes into the state of boiling at that temperature. Well, Paul is describing the state in which Christ was before His human life began, pre-existent. And he uses a present tense Greek verb. He was existing. It carries the idea of open-ended existence. Life without beginning, life without end. Before he took human nature, Paul says, Jesus was existing. And in what state was he existing? He was existing in the form of God. Now, the Greek word for form is morphe. You may know the, <coughs> the word morphology, which means the study of the shape of things. And the word morphe means the distinctive shape a thing must have to be that thing. So a circle, Euclid, I'm not going to read that. Euclid's definition is really complicated. What is a circle? A circle is a two-dimensional shape. And it's not just round, okay? Some of you are round. I'm round. Too round. For too long, right? It's not just round. A blob is round. Ovals are round. Okay? Tylenol pills are round, but they're not circles. To be a circle, you have to have the morphe of a circle, and the morphe of a circle nothing else has. 
And the morphe of a circle is a two-dimensional round shape whose radius remains the same all the way around the circumference. That's a circle and nothing else but a circle. Same is true of a square. The morphe of a square is a, is a um, I've lost the word now. Anyway, <laughs> square shape. What's the word? Help. Um, it is a quadrilateral. Thank you. Notes. Um, it's a quadrilateral, but that's not enough, okay? It has a, f- four, a quadrilateral with four equal sides all bounded by right angles. If you haven't got those things, you could be a rhomboid, um, a squished square, um, but you're not a square. You have to have the four right angles and the four equal shapes. Otherwise, you could be a rectangle or a parallelogram. Mathematics teachers can explain that later on to you. But only a square has the morphe of a square. And only God has the morphe of God. And that, Paul says, is precisely what Jesus had before he became flesh. He was existing in the morphe of God. He never became the morphe of God. He always was the morphe of God. Commenting on these words, B.B. Warfield, the 19th century Presbyterian scholar, said, Form is a term which expresses the sum of those characterizing qualities which make a thing the precise thing that it is. When our Lord is said to be in the form of God, therefore, He is declared in the most express manner possible to be all that God is, to possess the whole fullness of the attributes which make God, God. He was existing in the form of God. In other words, if it can be said of God, it must be said of Jesus in His divine nature as the person of God the Son. (laughs) It's the point James makes in chapter 2, verse 1. Turn there a second with me. Now, this is one of those verses that every English version I know makes the complete hymns of, even my beloved New American Standard. If you read it, James 2 verse 1, the ESV says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Well, there's no the Lord of in that Greek verse. The New American Standard is, is even worse. He calls us just our glorious Lord. No. What the Greek says is, My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? James answers in two Greek words. He is the glory. There's no second recurrence of the word Lord. And to put it in there muddies it up. He is the very epitome of the glory of God, the weightiness, the majesty, the the paraphernalia, the fullness. All of the insignia of God belong to Jesus. And nobody gave this to him. When Paul says, it pleased the Father for in him all the fullness to dwell, he's not speaking about God the Son in eternity. He's speaking about God the Son becoming flesh in the virgin's womb. It pleased the Father for the fullness of the Godhead to dwell in the man Christ Jesus. As God the Son, the divine person with the divine nature, added to Himself a new nature 
a human nature. So he's God the Son with a divine nature, and God the Son in his person with a human nature. One person, two natures. Calvin describes it so beautifully in one word, autotheos. He's automatically God. He is God in himself and of himself and from himself. He doesn't need the Father to lend him the wholeness of the divine nature. It belongs to the Son by divine right as God the Son. If the Father had to make him God the Son, he would no longer be God. And he would no longer be a son either. He is God. In the oneness of the Godhead, there are three distinct persons. And Paul here is describing the second person, the Son, who existed in the form of God, possessing the glory of God. And that is why we worship Jesus. He is the way only God can be. He's called names only God should be called. He existed when only God existed. He does things only God can do. And therefore, he receives worship that only God should get. Who he was. The Morphe of God. Then his, what he thought of himself, his mindset... Our second point. He did not regard literally the equalities of God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto with a tight fist. That's an interesting phrase, the equalities of God. It's used in John 5, but it's used in the singular in John 5, equality with God. The Jews were offended that Christ made himself equal, singular, with God. Here, Paul uses the same words, but he makes the one plural, equalities with God, which doesn't make much sense in the English, but it's very profound theological truth. The 17th century rabbinic scholar John Lightfoot said, between the two expressions, equality, equal with God, and the equalities of God, no other distinction can be drawn except that the former refers to the person, the latter to the attributes. So the Jews were offended that Christ made himself equal with the person of God, the Father. Paul here is saying that Christ is equal with all of the qualities of God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His goodness, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His justice, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His goodness, and infinite, and eternal, and unchangeable in His truth. If it can be said of God, it must be said of Jesus. Now, the thing is, Jesus knew that he did not count. He did not consider. He did not think equalities with God a thing to be grasped. And what's he saying here? What he's saying is, what Paul is doing here is, he's contrasting the attitude of Christ in heaven 
with the attitude of Adam in the garden. You remember what the devil said to Adam? You will be like God. Son, take that fruit, and you will be like God. And when he did take the fruit, he became like God. God said, he has become, they have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What was the essence of the temptation in the garden? It was this. Would Adam be content to let God be God, to let God be the one who determined what was good and what was evil, to learn of that information by sitting and listening and not by deciding on his own terms for his own pleasure and in his own way. And in the garden, Adam said, no, I will be the determinator of what is good and what is evil. And he reached up and took the tree that God said was bad to eat, and Eve and Adam saw that it was good to eat. And Adam took to himself the divine prerogative, which was the essence of the temptation. You will be like God. And he grasped it, reaching above himself to take what didn't belong to him. And Jesus Christ is exactly the same, but in reverse. He possessed equality with God in all of the glory and all of the paraphernalia that belongs to God and to God alone. He didn't have to grasp after it. It was His and His alone. But in the incarnation, rather than reaching above himself, which he couldn't have done, of course, he reached beneath himself. And became a man. He didn't hold on to it with a tight fist. He let go of it. And that mindset was Christ's in eternity. He's not describing, Paul is not describing Christ in Bethlehem. He's describing Christ before Bethlehem in eternity. That the essence to give of himself lies at the heart of God. The essence, the instinct to serve others lies at the heart of ultimate reality. As Jesus says, Father, I'm not going to hold on to who I am and my rights. I'm going to give them up. As the Father looks at a world of lost sinners, He gives His Son. He sacrifices His Son. The Holy Spirit, who like the lights outside a church at nighttime that illuminate the lights, nobody drives past a church and goes, oh, there are beautiful lights. They don't see the lights. They see what the lights illuminate. And the Holy Spirit is His whole purpose in the ex opere operato of the Trinity is the Trinity reaches out beyond itself to a creation. The whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is, don't look at me, look at the Father. Isn't He lovely? Look at the Son. Isn't He lovely? And He's directing all the attention away from Himself to the Father and to the Son, that the Son might be preeminent. That's one of the reasons why I used to be a member of the Charismatic Church, that if the church puts the emphasis on the Holy Spirit, 
They're putting the emphasis on a place the Holy Spirit would never want it to be. And I realize this emphasis I'm making a point, you understand? It should be on Christ. And so when Jesus washed his disciples' feet in the Garden of Eden, sorry, in the upper room, right? When he washed his disciples' feet, he wasn't being ungodly. He wasn't being ungodlike. The angels could say he's just like his father. He could still say, he that has seen me even now has seen the Father. That's why selfishness is wrong, because it makes the image of God, you and I, more like the devil than it does like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you know, every time you and I sin, deliberately, we make Adam's mistake. God says no, and we say, oh, yes. I'll take it. I don't care what God says. And when God says yes, we say, no, that's not my life. I'll go a different way. We are acting like Adam, taking and defining the good life on our terms and for our pleasure and our satisfaction. We're saying, ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And that's exactly what Jesus did not say when He stepped out of heaven and came down into the womb of the virgin. The only somebody there ever was made himself a nobody. So who he was, the form of God, what he thought of himself, I'm not holding on to my rights. And that's what I need to think about that. Whenever on those rare occasions Catherine stands on my toes and I think, how dare you speak to me like that? And much more commonly, she says to me, you shouldn't speak to me like that, honey. In those moments when we get annoyed at one another, I should remember This is not the way of Jesus. He's not just my Savior. He's my example. And he didn't grasp onto his rights. He held them in a, in a, in a, in a loose fist and was willing to lay his, his rights aside if it meant an opportunity to give himself to save me and to save you. Teenager, when your dad goes into your bedroom and dares to talk about how untidy it is, or maybe the length of your skirt, or maybe the, the amount of time you're playing in the video games, and you want to get angry and bristle and get angry at your dad. Just remember, that's not the way Jesus lived. He didn't hold on to his rights. He didn't say, who are you, dad, to ask me to go to hell for the likes of them? He, 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 he had it, equality with God. But he didn't grasp it. Who he was, the form of God, what he thought of himself, I'm not holding on to that with a tight fist. Thirdly then, what he became. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the morphe of a slave. The morphe of God, the exact size and shape of God, becomes the morphe of a slave. And the word Paul uses is, is emptied himself. And the Greek word kanao, 
And I say that because if you read theology, you'll come across the canonic theory of the atonement, that Christ emptied himself of his divine nature, his divine prerogatives. He laid aside omniscience, omnipresence, and became a human being. And that theology trickles down in our hymns. If you read the original version of Anne Can It Be, sorry to burst your bubble, but it says he emptied himself of all but love. Is that what Christ did? Well, look, it says here, he emptied himself. That is categorically not what Paul is saying. How did Christ empty himself? He emptied himself not by subtraction. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself not by losing his divine glory. He emptied himself by taking. By taking the form of a bondservant. Without ceasing to be what he'd always been, he became something he had never been before a servant, a bond servant, the lowest of the low, the kind of slave who had no time of his own, no rights of his own, no property of his own, who was the property of another, his master. See Jesus relinquishing. That's why you don't want to see movies about Jesus. You'd be caught up with the blood and the gore. The real genius behind Jesus is the mindset, the form of God, the morphe of God becoming the morphe, the exact size and shape of a slave. Think about that for a moment. Think about who Jesus did this for. He did this for you and me. He did this for his disciples. And we are not easy people to love. We're so unteachable, so earthbound in our vision, so self centered. We will feel him time and time and again. In the hour of temptation, we give in. When he calls us to stand, we run away and forsake him and flee. And Jesus was not blind to any of that when he made himself nothing for you. He knew the worst about you. And he knew the worst about you. And he knew the worst about you. And he knew the worst about me. And in his gracious mind, his love survived the knowledge of the worst. Even though he knew who he was, even though he knew what you were, he still made himself nothing to take the form of a bondservant. Paul continues, being in the likeness of men. Interesting, the plural, men, not man, but men. 
He didn't just look like a man, he looked like men. In other words, he didn't stand out in the madding crowd of humanity. He looked ordinary. Paul says he was found in the schemata of a man. The ESV says being found in human form. That's unfortunate. It's not morphe. It's human schemata. Um, The Greek denotes what can be seen by any observer. Look at Jesus, and you saw a man, only a man. There was nothing about his appearance that made him unusual. These were the days, remember, when there were no daily showers and no anti-deodorant or antiperspirant. You would not want to have sat beside Jesus on the bus. The Son of Man had nowhere where to lay his head. He would have smelt like a homeless vagrant. And also remember, and I'm going to be delicate here, but these were the days before toilet paper. God the Son had to learn to wipe himself with his own hand. In the epistle to the Romans, Paul goes even further. Romans 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. I want to be careful here, but Paul says He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's amazing. He didn't come in sinful flesh. Christ, His human nature was entirely free from the contagion of sin. His person comes from the Godhead, not from Adam. We contract sin by a reason I can't explain, but covenantally, we contract sin because our persons descend from Adam by ordinary generation, and we are fallen in Adam. Christ, His person, comes from the Godhead and is free from any and all pollution. He is free of sin. But He comes, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, Jesus didn't just look like an ordinary human being. He looked like any other ordinary sinner, though He was not. He had no halo above His head, no brightness in His face except in His transfiguration to give you any sense that He was not just another ordinary Joe sinner. Illustration. Let's say, for example, by a case of mistaken identity, you were arrested today. And let's say you were taken to the jail. And let's say the normal holding cells were full, and the only space in the jail was in the pedophile section, and you're put there overnight. The next morning, you're having your breakfast, eating your cornflakes with all the pedophiles and child molesters. And to your horror, CNN come in, Christian Amanpour doing a special on pedophiles in Greensboro, and the cameras are all there, and there's you sitting beside Joe and Jane pedophile eating your breakfast. Now, of course, you're not a pedophile, but to any casual observer, that's the last thing they would see. They would think you were one, because you were there you were sitting among them, looking just like them. And that's what Paul says. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
It's almost agonizing for me to say it. Can you imagine the condens- the, the condescension in the heart of Jesus? How lovely he is. He's the fairest among ten thousands. He would go from there, the right hand of the throne of God on high, down, not just to be the form of a servant and not just to be the form of a man and the schemata of a man, but to be found in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as we'll see next week, there's another step down, and it's an awful lot longer as he consents not just to be like a sinner, but to become sin itself in the presence of God. His mind. And Paul says, let this mind be in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you by birthright. New birth into the kingdom of God, Christian. That you're to think this way. And when I, when I say that, I, I, I realize I haven't even begun to begin to live the Christian life. Here I am, a minister of the gospel. To have that level of condescension. That when someone stands on my toes, my toesy-woosies, I don't get all bent out of shape because I've got the mind of Christ. I can't, it, it's beyond me because I think it's beneath me. But it wasn't beneath Him. And that's how you and I overcome our pride. That's how we overcome our grumbling disputing spirit, fighting one with another, quarreling, bickering, backbiting. We need not just to think less of ourselves, we need to think more about Jesus. That His mindset would be so much before us, we couldn't close our eyes without seeing Him, saying, Father, I don't matter. The angel's gasping. What do you mean He doesn't? There's none worthy but you. What do you mean you don't matter? No, Father, they matter. My people matter. I will give myself up for them. I will pour myself out for them. I will lay myself down for them, that I might rescue them and redeem them and make them your children. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is exactly what Jesus is offering to do for you. Your problem, your sin you think about sin as like sex before marriage, drinking alcohol, you know, when you're too young, whatever, all these things. And, and yes, drunkenness, fornication, they're sins, right? But that's not really what sin is. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. A creature being unhappy to be a creature, being unwilling to be obedient and saying, I will be as God. And here's Jesus, the Son of God, the judge of all the earth, who could damn you righteously to hell in a moment, and the angels would worship Him for it, saying, no, I will become sin for you. Uh, I, I will become nothing for you. I will empty myself by taking the form of a slave for you to serve you, my servants, that I might redeem you and rescue you and bring you home to God. And all you need to do this morning is 
to have the willingness in your heart to, to, to give yourself over to Jesus. This is Jesus who, who wouldn't hold on to His glory tightly that He might take your sin as His own. And will you hold on to your sin tightly and not give it up? Are you so in love with yourself, you'll hold on to yourself, me, myself, and I dot come. And Jesus says, open your hands. As I opened my hands when I became nothing, and come to me and let me make you something, that now you might become a child of God. And it will not yet appear what you are, but when I appear, you will be like me. As I became like you on the cross, you will become like me in glory forever. Let's pray together. (coughs) (coughs) O God, our Father in heaven, forgive me, Father, for my foolish pride. I'm so arrogant. I hate myself, Father. The stupid things I say constantly. My tongue is in a wet place. It's prone to slip. I hurt my friends, my family. I say stupid things all the time because there's too much of me in my life. And I pray, oh Lord, you'd forgive me. Now that's true of me, a minister, oh God. I can only imagine how my congregation struggle, oh God, led by such a poor example. Help me, oh God, to follow Christ more fully as a servant, that they might follow me as I follow Christ. And that together, O Lord, we might die to ourselves and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for ourselves. In his name we pray. Amen.